You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Michael Kenneth Williams became uh, a household name and a famous actor for his role in the early 2000s in the HBO series, The Wire. He played the character known as Omar. Michael Williams, last year, September of 2021, died of a drug overdose in Brooklyn, New York. He, unbeknownst to him, had taken a lethal dose of heroin that had been mixed with fentanyl. He struggled with drug addiction off and on for the entirety of his adult life. And this, is, this struggle was a result of him being molested at about 12 or 13 years old and thinking of himself as damaged goods. And in a 2016 interview uh, with NPR's Terry Gross, he described his relationship with a pastor named Reverend Ronald Christian and his experience at uh, uh, Ron Christian's church, Christian Love Baptist Church in Newark, New Jersey. He met Reverend Christian during the second season of the filming of The Wire. He was in a downward spiral abusing drugs. He was, in his own words, in jeopardy of destroying everything that he had worked for. And he said this about Reverend Christian. He said, I'm not saying that he accepted me in my dysfunctionalism, but he loved me in it. And then he said, this was the first time that I actually walked in a church and felt okay. I didn't feel dirty. I would never go into a church. It made me question myself on every level. Those events happening so early on in my life. And I would go to church with this secret, this weight, like I'm dirty. I'm dirty. Uh, God is never going to want me. I'm dirty. He said, I had a very low self-esteem coming up, and I just never felt like God loves me because I was dirty, I was damaged goods, and I wore that badge very early on in my life, and I didn't let that go until I walked into Christian Love Baptist Church. I saw other men who said, me too, out loud. He said, and it doesn't make you any less of a man. It doesn't make you dirty dirty learning. He said, how to forgive myself and forgive other people. He said, I got all of that at Christian love. There's a lot we could say about what Michael Williams shared, but here's part of why I'm telling you this story this morning. Whether or not you are able to relate to his experience, none of us get through this life trauma-free. None of us, no matter how wealthy or successful we might be by society's standards or how displaced we might be from the pathway to prosperity, none of us gets to live a life in this world that does not need continual healing physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritual healing. Pain 
and trauma are pervasive in the human experience. We suffer pain and we cause pain. Uh, we are traumatized and we traumatize others. Where is hope found for this seemingly permanent problem? In this Easter season, our Messages, as I said, are honing in on living in light of the resurrection. We've talked about peace. We've talked about joy. And we're going to talk today about healing. Jesus' resurrection is God's guarantee to us that he is making all things new. And this includes our healing. Three things I want to share with you. In this message, I want to tell you this morning three things. One, Jesus has time for you. Two, Jesus has time for your healing. And three, Jesus has time for your faith. Jesus has time for you. He has time for your healing. And he has time for your faith. And in this passage, we encounter two people who are in need of, of healing and two people who are desperate for Jesus to help them. Mark tells us this account in, in a format that he loves to use, this, this, this sandwich format. It's, it's called by theologians the Markin Sandwich. And he does it several times in his gospel. What he does is he starts to tell a story. And then before finishing that, that first story, he interrupts it with another story. And then he goes back to wrap up the first story. And it's not that Mark has trouble uh, focusing on one thing. Uh, no, the stories are always connected and instrumental to the point that he's trying to make. And in many respects, the, the theme verse for Mark's entire gospel is found in the first chapter, uh, verses 14 and 15. When, when Jesus comes on the scene, Mark says that he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king is here and so the kingdom is at hand. Before we get, by the time rather we get into this passage, it has become clear in Mark's gospel that Jesus is a healer. He's demonstrating that the kingdom of God is at hand not only by what he is saying with his mouth, but by what he is doing, casting out demons and healing diseases. In fact, in the passage right before ours, Jesus is in the Gentile region called the Gerasenes, and, and he heals a demon-possessed man. And now Mark says in verse 21 that he crosses over again uh, uh, on the the other side in a boat back to the other side of the sea. He's back, if you will, in Jewish territory, and because word about Jesus has been spreading far and, and wide, a great crowd, Mark says, gathered around him. And when Mark says at the end of verse 21 that he was beside the sea. We get the sense that Jesus is about to begin teaching again to the crowd. But then a man named 
Jairus, a ruler of one of the synagogues, Mark says, uh, 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 comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And as a synagogue ruler, here are some of the things that, that we know about, about this man Jairus. He, he was surely a religious man. In fact, more than religious, he would have had as a synagogue ruler a reputation of being a pious man. He was a well-respected man. He was a man who carried a, a high degree of authority in the community. He was a well-resourced man, a, 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 a man who had, who had access to, to, to power and wealth and, and respect and, and resources. And his daughter lay next to death, likely with some incurable disease, and there was nothing that he could do about it. All of the access to all of these resources, power, and wealth, and respect, and there's nothing he can do. Let me point out two things. First, when he says, my little daughter, you need to hear a depth of, of love and affection being expressed. You need to hear him saying in a voice of desperation, this is my baby girl. This is my sweet girl. Parents and aunties and uncles and, and godparents and grandparents, what terms of endearment do you use to describe the little ones in your life? Whatever term you use, put that in here. In this passage, that's the affection that is, that is being expressed this is as deeply affectionate as it gets, and what makes, which makes the second point that much more desperate. My precious daughter is at the point of death. She's at death's door. Can you feel the hopelessness and the helplessness that he is expressing. We, we haven't gotten to the, to, the, to the woman with the discharge of blood yet who spent all that she had in, in search of, of healing, but you can imagine that Jairus had brought whatever resources he could muster to bear in the hopes of healing his daughter. And nothing. What does Jesus do? In response to Jairus's prostrated plea, Mark simply says, Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. We are meant to hear that and respond internally with a sense of hope for healing, just like that great crowd that followed and thronged about Jesus. They are anticipating healing's coming. Healing is coming. Jesus went with him. But then this massive procession of people, as they are on their way to Jairus' house, they are interrupted when Mark takes us from the top of the social order to the bottom of the social order. The synagogue ruler has a name, and his name is Jairus. And the title for the second desperate person in our text is only given to us as the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
13 years before encountering Jesus, she may not have been poor. But then she contracts this physical ailment that caused her, her body to go from discharging blood monthly to the blood flowing continually. So even before she has exhausted all of her resources going to doctors, she has become an outcast. Her flow of blood made her ceremonially unclean. She is now excluded from her community because of her disease. Look at how Mark describes the last 10, 12 years, rather, of this woman's life. She, he says she suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had. Her doctor visits are described as suffering. Can you just imagine the, the nasty-tasting potions she must have had to, to try to drink over all of these years? Can you imagine the invasive procedures she had to endure for a dozen years? This was not healing, it was suffering. Especially since, as Mark tells us, she got no better, she just kept getting worse. Here she is in her desperation, pressing through the crowd behind Jesus and, 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 and to touch his garments because she said to herself, this man is a healer. This man is a healer. If only I can touch his garments, I will be healed. Listen, one of, one of the implications of this unnamed woman's healing being right in the middle of the whole story, one of the things that it does for us is highlight the way that marginalized people are centered and elevated by Jesus. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but Jesus literally stops. He literally stops and turns to find out who touched him. And even though she's healed, she comes forward, Mark says, in fear and, and trembling. She's shaking, still ashamed. Jesus brings her out of, of the darkness of her shame into his light, and he elevates her. This excluded, marginalized outcast is now a daughter. She had no place in society other than the bottom rung, and now Jesus calls her daughter. Mark didn't need to tell us her name because the only name that matters is the one Jesus gives her in verse 34, daughter. She's now family, a daughter of the king. I need you to know this morning that it does not matter what your station in life is, whether you are well-resourced and like the elite gyrus or, or on the margins under-resourced like an outcast, Jesus has time for you. And it is always the case that he has time for you in your pain. He moves towards you in your pain. 
Your pain makes you desperate, and I need you to know that he has time for you in your pain, no matter who you are. Both of these image bearers turn to Jesus in their desperation and find out that in his love, he has time for them. Reverend Christian, he he demonstrated and modeled this in real life for, for Michael Williams when in that same interview, Williams came to realize that the pastor had no idea that he was a famous actor. <laughs> Reverend Christian asked Williams, he said, he asked me to, to write my full name down on a piece of paper for him. And the pastor says, well, what do you want me to call you? And, he, and, and Michael Williams says, my name is Michael, but, but you can call me Mike. Mike is, Mike is fine. And then Reverend Christian says, well, why are everybody telling me that Omar's in trouble? Like, like who's this Omar, <laughs> you know? And then William said, he was like, I was like, oh, snap. This guy has no idea who I am. He just heard that somebody was in trouble and needed his help. Listen, this is our heart here at this church, Grace Mosaic that we would be the kind of Jesus-formed community where you get to experience in real time that Jesus has time for you no matter who you are. He has time for you. He has time. He has time to see about you. And he has time, our second point, he has time for your healing. And I want to be clear here. I want to be clear here. When I say that Jesus has time for your healing, I am not saying believe in Jesus and you are guaranteed to experience healing in this life from whatever ails you in the here and now. That's not true. Is it possible? <laughs> Is it possible? Well, God can heal through ordinary means. God can heal through extraordinary means. So, yes, it's possible, but it's not guaranteed. got miraculous healings in our passage, but Jesus didn't heal everybody in Israel. My point in saying that Jesus has time for your healing is to emphasize a word that isn't found in our passage, but it jumps out at me from this text, and that word is patience. Or as the King James translation likes to say, long-suffering. The invitation to patience, the invitation to long-suffering even in our pain. Let me ask you this. What do you think, what do you think that Jairus is thinking as Jesus is making his way to heal his daughter but stops to see about this woman? How urgent, how urgent is his daughter's situation? And have you, have you ever been to the emergency room? You ever gone to the emergency room? Now, you know, typically we go to the emergency room because we got a medical emergency, right? And, it, and it's usually the case that we think that our medical emergency is probably the most important medical emergency that anybody has in the emergency room. But, you know, physicians and, and the medical staff, they got to make a judgment call as to which cases are more urgent than the others. So even if you are next up to be seen, if somebody comes in with a, a more life-threatening issue, they're going to skip you in line. 
Well, you know, what is Jairus thinking? What is he thinking as he gets skipped in line? His baby girl is on her last breaths, and Jesus stops to engage and take his sweet time with somebody whose condition is bad, but she's not about to die. What would you be thinking? What would you be saying? Jesus, we need to go. We ain't got time for this. You can come back and see about her. But Jesus isn't in a rush. He is not in a rush. And not only is he not in a rush, he's not anxious. He's not sweating. He has no anxiety. During communion, we're going to sing a a song that's become a favorite of mine. It's on repeat for me in my playlist at least weekly. I think I listened to it at least two times yesterday as I was, as I was flying back uh, to D.C. And the title of the song is, He Has Time. <laughs> it's written in response to the, to the Me Too movement, but it resonates so much with me because we all find ourselves suffering in this broken world just like Jairus and his daughter and the woman with the discharge of blood, and we need to know that Jesus has time for our healing. We will sing these words, and in not too long from now, something's been broken under the weight of the, something's been stolen, rather, under the weight of the curse, you've been broken. You can't shake the feeling. He's not in a rush. He has time for your healing. Lean on his shoulder. It's never too late, and your story's not over. Why? Because we will sing, Jesus runs after the broken ones, weeping with those who weep and crowns them with purity and years of shame shatter in Jesus' name. He's here and he has time to take what's wrong and make it right. Can you hear the years of shame shattering for this sister in verse 34 when Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Do you understand that in your suffering, in your trauma, and in your pain, that this benediction, this is the benediction that Jesus wants to pronounce over you. Go in peace. Go in peace. I'm not, I am not trying to be flippant or formulaic or make this sound like it's something that is easy because we need to sit in this story. These are real people with real pain and real trauma who turn to Jesus in their real desperation and they find out that he has time for their healing. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Okay. You need, you need to know, we need to know this last point. I mean, Jesus has time for you. Jesus has time for your healing. But we need to know this last point because this is actually the whole point. He has time for you. He has time for your healing. But the emphasis in both of these stories is faith. 
that Jesus has time for your faith. This dear woman in verses 25 to 34 was under a misimpression. She's under a misimpression. She was, she was, if you will, more focused on magic and superstition because she said, if I only touch even his garments, I will, I will be made well. In other words, in her mind, touching the clothes of a holy man had magical power. And Jesus, Jesus was not going to leave her living under that deception Two things happened when she touched his garments. It says immediately the flow of blood dried up and she knew in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then it says, and Jesus knew that power had gone out from him. Uh, I know the, the words in verses 29 and 30 say that she felt in her body and Jesus perceiving in herself. But, but both uh, of those words, felt and perceived, come from the same Greek root word, which means to know. She knew immediately, and Jesus knew immediately. More to the point, more to the point, she knew that he knew. She knew that he knew. He turns around, scanning the crowd, and says, who touched me, right? And the disciples are like, Jesus, you see all of these people all around. It is impossible to know who touched you. And verse 33 is a beautiful scene. Even though she is shaking with fear, she comes into the light and she falls at his feet. And Mark says, she tells him the whole truth. She tells him everything and now we get to know what he wants her to know daughter your faith has made you well your faith daughter has saved you go in peace Jesus needs to correct her misunderstanding and let her know that it is her faith in him and his power that has made all the difference not touching his clothes Jairus implored Jesus in verse number 23, come and lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be healed and, and live. And now, just like the things went from bad to worse for the woman with the discharge of blood, things go from bad to worse for Jairus' daughter. People come from the ruler's house and they tell him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Hope is gone. It is now time for grief and lamentation and mourning. When it says in verse 36 that Jesus overheard them saying this to him, the, the, the emphasis and the nuance is that he's actually ignoring what they're saying. She's dead, but he's still going. He's still making his way, and the story is not over. So he says to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. Do not fear, only have faith. Have faith in me and in my power. It's the same point. They get to the house and there's all this commotion and weeping and wailing. You got professional wailers. You know, it's like Bob Marley and the wailers. You got professional 
whalers, right, doing their job. When someone has passed away and Jesus is like, what's all this commotion about? Why are are y'all wailing? The child isn't dead. She's sleeping, and right? Of course they laugh at him. What are you talking about? We know she's dead. And then Mark tells us he puts them all out. And he takes the parents and he takes Peter and James and John and he he goes in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now look, I know that some of y'all in trying to get your adolescent children to get up in the morning, get ready for school, or get ready for, for church, y'all, y'all got to use your outside voice sometimes <laughs> to get them jokers out of bed. But Jesus isn't shouting here. He doesn't say, Talitha Kumi comes and he takes her hand and and he says to her, baby girl, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. And he says, Mark says, just like the flow of blood dried up immediately, immediately at the voice of Jesus, the girl gets up. She gets up, walks around. Everybody's amazed. And Jesus says, y'all need to give us something to eat. The through line in these stories is Jesus' emphasis on faith in him. Sometimes we can be fooled into thinking that this thing is all about us. I've used the pronoun you and, and your and all of these points, but you and I are not at the center, nor are we the hero of the passage. Jesus is at the center. It is his love and his compassion and his sacrifice, all so that we might know him. The reason for us to have faith in Jesus is his cross-shaped sacrificial love. And Mark has actually displayed that sacrificial love in this passage in a way that is easy for us to miss. Did you notice that Mark says in verse 30 that Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him? Now, wait a second. What is that about? Why, when this woman touches his garments, that Power goes out from Jesus. Now, if we'd been reading we'd have, Mark's gospel, we'd already known it, that Jesus was healing and casting out demons and healing the sick. Even at the end of chapter 4, he even tells the, the, the wind to, to stop blowing and the sea to stop raging and nothing about power going out from him. Why here? Why here are we told that power has been drained from him? Is it that this... Woman's flow of blood weakens him? No, Mark is setting us up for the cross. He's setting us up for the cross. He's letting us know that the price for our ultimate healing is Jesus hanging in weakness 
on the cross where we will hear him cry out in desperation in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of desperation was necessary for our eternal healing so that living in light of the resurrection means we know that healing is coming. We know that just like he got up, we'll get up. The question is, and this is, I'm going to, how long have I been taking? I don't know. We got, I don't know. We are coming to a Presbyterian end, not a Baptist end. It means it's really almost done. Family, the question is this. How does our faith in Jesus make us well, even if our pain and suffering continue? How does our faith in Jesus make us well even if our pain and suffering continues? Our faith in Jesus makes us well by reorienting our gaze from our affliction to the promise of his presence and glory. Job, we heard in our scripture reading about Job, he, he, Job found out that his, his gaze was, was reoriented in his affliction in this scripture reading from Job chapter 42. Job had been in such pain and anguish that, that he said he wished that he had never been born. And we know that at the end of the book of Job, right, he's restored and he is, and he is healed. Uh, but that he's not healed yet in chapter 42. He ain't healed yet. And this is what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know here. And I will speak. I will question you when you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes in the middle of his pain Job says I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you therefore I despise myself and repent in just dust and ashes and when he says I repent in dust and ashes the sense of the word repent there is not grief and sadness and sorrow the sense of the word is that he is comforted in dust and ashes. He is consoled in dust and ashes. In the middle of his affliction, he's consoled by faith because his gaze has been reoriented. Or as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Here's the last word. Y'all know Alicia Akins, right? Yeah, if y'all haven't listened to Gather Round episode, you need to listen to it. She published a book recently titled Invitations to Abundance. And here's how I want to close. She says in this book that Christians are, she says, we are people of hope. And she asks the question 
about our response to affliction. He says, is there anything we can do in our affliction besides hunker down in the darkness and ride it out till the end? And this is what she says. She says, we look before and behind. The restoration is not just nearer to us than it was for Israel, but the restorer has come. He dwells within us and has brought his feast there. Spiritual myopia suffocates hope. Short-sightedness barricades our, our escape, focusing only on the present hardship while either ignoring God's past faithfulness or failing to look forward to the completion of God's work of renewal makes despair like quicksand. Instead, she says, we open our hearts to God's story in scripture, in our lives, and in the testimony of fellow witnesses to his grace around us, regardless of how far back the truth, or rather, regardless of how far back ruin and devastation reach in our stories, even if it feels like we are enmeshed in them now, we have hope. And we live out that hope, not by wishful thinking, but through God's spirit and the routine rehearsal of the truth that his faithfulness will continue in the future, even as it has in the past. Family, he has time. It's time for you. It's time for your healing. Here's time for your faith. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.